you take a copy of God's Word, this evening we're going to turn open to the book of James. I'm going to start a series this evening from the book of James. I promised it would be a little shorter tonight, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this evening. As we close out this Lord's Day, a wonderful text to do that with. Let's pray for God's rich blessing upon us this evening. Father, we pray with the psalmist, we would rather be a doorkeeper in your house, O God to dwell in the tents of wickedness. One thing have we asked of you that we might gaze upon your beauty, dwell in your holy temple, and we might see you in all of your goodness. We might, as the psalmist says, know you are God in the mighty works that you have done. We pray that we would not hide them from our children, but that we would tell them to the coming generation that they might believe in You, this great, wonder-working God, and they might set their hope in You and not be like their fathers at the waters of Meribah who denied You. We pray that even tonight as we're gathered in this place that we would find that our minds and our hearts are caught up with You. That You are speaking to us with that still, small voice with which You spoke to the prophet. That wherever we are at, or whatever state we are in this evening, that we would know that we have encountered the living God. Would You do so by Your Word, we pray. In Christ's holy name, Amen. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is a very familiar text to those of you that have been in the church for any period of time. It begins our 
our exposition of the book of James, as we'll do here through the, the spring semester here in the evening services. Uh, it seemed apropos that this is how James begins his book. Uh, James is very pointed, he is very practical in his writing, and he does so from the very outset of this book. He holds no punches, he just launches right in. There is no soft beginning. He doesn't even, like the Apostle Paul, you know, give a greetings, the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. It's just James just says, greetings, and then he launches in. It seems to be James. Uh, James, of course, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, James uh, was not always a believer in his half-brother. Uh, he, like the rest of his siblings, uh, did not believe in Jesus, as we see in the Gospels. Uh, they will try and talk him out of much of what he said about himself and the things that he had claimed. And yet what appears is that James came to saving faith, maybe towards the end of Jesus' life, but most likely came to saving faith after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And James will become really the focal leader in the early church as we see there in Acts. Peter and Paul, of course, play their crucial roles, but it's James that we see there in Acts that, like the Jerusalem Council, will defer to and look to for leadership in the midst. And he is a wise voice in the midst of that council. So James is the author of our book. We don't know who exactly he's writing to, what churches, it just says to the dispersion, so it says Christian churches throughout, no doubt, the Mediterranean world. We're not exactly sure who it was first addressed to. But at the very outset here, as we said, he launches right in with a very pointed admonition and a challenge. And it is this, that you have trials, dear Christian, in your life, and this is what it's to look like in the midst of these trials. Why is it that he immediately begins to talk about trials at the very beginning of the book? Is it because the churches that he's writing to are churches that are facing persecution? We don't know. That could be the case. But most likely, it's just he's writing at the very outset about trials because this is just part and parcel of the Christian life. And as he is about to detail what it looks like in the rest of the book to live for Christ in light of the Gospel, to be a person of faith, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. At the very outset, he hits us with what is just true of Christian living, that it is filled with trials. I want to look at it just in two ways this morning, these verses from the text. What in the midst of trials, and how in the midst of trials. It is what are we to look like in the midst of trials, and how are we to accomplish that in the midst of trials. I've often thought, and I've had this conversation with multiple people in our congregation over the years, uh, that it would be a surprise, I think, to most. Uh, it's a surprise, it seems, to many that feel like they are the only ones going through trials, that even those in our congregation that appear to have the most put-together lives, seems like the lines have fallen for them in pleasant places, as the Scriptures say, 
that even those seem everything seems to be in order, that they're suffering. Everyone is suffering. Every single person has suffered and is suffering to some degree. That, that may be the greatest marker of Christians within the church, the thing that, that marks us all the same. Besides the fact that we are the recipients of the love of Christ and the fact that we have been filled with the Spirit, it may be this, that every single Christian I know has suffered and is suffering. I often think about that on Sunday mornings, on Lord's Table Sunday mornings like we had this morning when we are passing out the elements and I'm standing behind the table, I'm doing this. I'm going through the room and I'm looking at everybody in the room and I usually just scan it like this. And as I'm scanning the room, as my eyes fall on each person and each family, I'm thinking about what is it that they are going through. I know most families, individuals in the room, and I know most what they are suffering through to some degree, greater or lesser, and I'm just praying for each family, each individual as we take the Lord's table on Sunday, praying for you in the midst of that suffering because everybody's suffering. Everyone. Trials are very real, and it's just part of living the Christian life. And in the midst of those trials, especially the severe ones, all of life, just seems to be clouded with them. But here's where James comes in. What does he desire to see in the Christian in the midst of trials? What is it that he says is to mark the Christian in the midst of trials? And he says this, he says, count it all joy. Now that seems like a very odd command. Who welcomes trials? Who wants things to be hard in life? And the answer is absolutely no one. No one is a glutton for punishment. Nobody wants more heaped upon them. Nobody wants to suffer more. And yet, James says here, this command, he says, count it all joy. That's a command. Now, why would he give that command? It's not because trials themselves are something you and I are to seek. It's not because trials themselves are something that are pleasant, but rather it's the fruit that comes from those trials that James has in mind. And so he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the fruit. It's the fruit that's born from these trials. And so it's not just that the Christian is to simply endure these trials, James is saying. It's even a sense, he says, you are when these trials come into your life, there's to be a sense of rejoicing that this trial has come into my life. 
It's a mindset that he is asking for. That's why he says, consider it. Set your mind on this. Think upon this. Grab a hold of this. This is a pilgrim mindset. Thinking back on our series here in January in the mornings where we talked about that we are pilgrims on our way to that eternal celestial city. This is a pilgrim mindset. It's where the thing that is occurring in my life, the trial that I'm going through, I'm not just caught up in the moment of it. It's not just the thing itself, and so I'm devastated by it. But a pilgrim mindset allows me to look beyond the present circumstances and to look at what the benefit might be for me eternally. How this might actually be conforming and forming me to the likeness of Christ, which as a pilgrim in this world, that's my great desire as a Christian. I just want to look like more like the one that I love. That's the great desire. And so James can say very pointedly, look, when the trial comes, here's the command you counted as joy. John Newton said this, he said, trials no less than comforts or the token of God's love. All is regulated by infinite wisdom. That's a hard thing to wrestle with. We wrestle with this idea that, you know what, even as I see an answer to prayer, something I was desirous for, and the Lord has answered that, what a wonderful sign of His efficacious and of His abundant love to me. What Newton is saying and what James is saying here is that when trial comes into your life, the pilgrim mindset, the mindset of the Christian is to welcome that with the same sense. And to say, this is the love of God aimed at me. This is His providence. This is not accident. And why has this come into my life? So that I might be conformed more to the likeness of Christ. It's love. So I can count it as joy. You know this from your own observations. The best Christians are those who have suffered the most. You know this. I often tell pastors this that call for advice and are suffering through some. I say, ah, the best pastors I know are those who have suffered most. It's the same for pastors. It is the same for elders. It's the same for deacons. It is the same for every Christian. Why? Because trials test faith. Like an Olympian athlete who is being tested by day after day, and they become a better athlete. 
Because what is happening in that training, they are strengthening their muscles, they are increasing their understanding, they are establishing their resolve. So, as a Christian goes through trials, faith is increased. Godliness is formed. Maturity is reached. And most often that happens in the Christian life through trials. Now, what does such a mindset look like? What does it look like to count it all joy? It is asking, in the midst of it, not why would God do this? It's not asking in the midst of this, when will this finally end? Counting it all joy, having that kind of mindset is asking the question, what is it that the Lord is seeking to do in my life through this? Where is it that He is refining me? Where is it that He is removing the dross? Where is it that He is shaping and molding me? Those are the questions. Those are right questions, the right pursuits. That's easier said than done, especially when those trials are high waters, and they strike at the very core of your person, the very core of your life. It is not easy to do. It is easier said than done. And yet God knows this. And He says to you and I, through the Apostle James, count it all, all joy. In James' mind, what he is teaching us is that the trials of life, they are God-ordained, They're God-directed. They're God-appointed. That's not an accident. It's for a growth. It's for maturing. Does this mean that trials shouldn't bother us? No. It is sub-Christian to say that we are to remain undisturbed by trials. We aren't Stoics. And we don't advocate a kind of stoicism as Christians. There should be tears. There should be wrestling on your bed at night. There should be weeping. There is to be mourning. But as a Christian, as Calvin said about this idea, for a Christian, we aim to be like the sea before a light breeze, little ripples of disturbance rather than being swollen into crashing waves. That is, when trial comes into the Christian's life, our great aim in the midst of that is not to be unaffected. That's unchristian. But it's to be affected where it doesn't upend our entire world, where it's like the entire sea has just been crashing down upon us, but it's to be as the wind just upon the sea, just little ripples. This is part of having the right mindset. As those suffering under the mighty providence of God, we are to pray for growing inner peace so that we can endure. It's not easy. It's a worthy pursuit. A Christian pursuit. Let's issue a warning here. James 1 is not where you are first to run with someone that is suffering. Neither is Romans 8. We are to weep with those who weep, and we are to mourn with those who mourn. 
When Jesus shows up at the grave of Lazarus after Lazarus has died and Mary and Martha are there, He doesn't say to them, Stop your crying. This is for the glory of God and for your good. That's not what He does. He weeps. He weeps with them and He weeps for them. Romans 8, James 1 is not meant to be a club by which you beat somebody down that is already burdened with incredible grief. You stow it away, you pack it into your own soul so that it's there when you're going through trial, and you bring it out in time as you're ministering to friends in Christ. Second, how can you have this counted joy mindset that James is talking about? How do you pursue this? How do you have this? I love Psalm 62 for this reason. David in Psalm 62, one of my favorite psalms, he is facing severe trial. And in the midst of that trial, he is resolved. He's counting it joy, as James would say here in in James chapter 1. And how does he do that? You can't see it necessarily in the English because it's a word that will be translated different ways in the English text. But it's one word in the Hebrew, in Psalm 62. And it's a word that is used over and over six times in that psalm. It's used in verse 1. It's used in verse 2. It's used in verse 4. It's used in verse 5. It's used in verse 6. And it's used in verse 9. Six times in that psalm. And in each time that it is used, the writer in that psalm, David, he puts that word at the very front of that verse. It's the word that governs all the rest of that verse. He's bringing it to the forefront so you can't miss it. Six times. And it's the word alone or only. It's a little hard to translate into English, but often our Bibles translate it one of those two ways, alone or only. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 2, He only is my rock and my fortress. Verse 5, for God alone. Verse 6, He only is my rock and salvation. What is David doing? He's emphasizing that our rest is in God. But it's not simply rest in God, but he's saying it's rest in God alone. He's worthy, David is saying, of our trust. And you need that reminder in the midst of trial. He's worthy. And He alone is worthy of our trust. When all else is failing us, God isn't. When everything else seems to be caving in around us, friends have abandoned us, families forsaken us, this world seems to hate us, Everything seems to be drying up. Everything's against us. Not everything. Where the psalmist says, I know this, that God is for me. He's for me. David has that mindset. 
Because he has that mindset, he doesn't play games, he doesn't hedge his bets, he pushes all of his chips to the middle. He is all in on God, and he is all in on God alone. That's where he's going to put his trust. That's James' point in verses 5-8. through eight, You and I are to turn to God in such moments. You often rip these verses out of context as if wisdom is, he's just talking purely about wisdom. He is talking about wisdom, but what he is doing is he's tying it to the midst of trial. And you're in the midst of trial and you're struggling to believe and you're struggling in the midst of it. And he's saying, look, you're looking for wisdom in the midst of this. You turn to God. You, you want to know how to operate in the midst of this. You want to know how to endure until the end of this. You turn to God. Same thing that David's saying. You trust in God. To seek wisdom from Him. and Wisdom only comes from above. That's how we have this mindset. He gives two great promises in this text. One, the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness. That's a wonderful promise. And then the second promise is, and if we need wisdom in the midst of our testing, God will provide it. We but need ask for it. It's a promise. And what I want you to see about the promise that James gives here, when you and I ask for wisdom, is all the qualifiers he puts around this. I want you to see the four phrases he uses here in verse 5. We're told that if we ask for wisdom from God, now look at these, look at these phrases. One, he gives generously. Two, he gives to all. Three, he gives without reproach. These are incredibly encouraging phrases. He gives generously. That is, he's not reluctant in his giving. You ask for wisdom. You ask to be given. He gives. There's no reluctance on his part. He doesn't give sparingly. He gives. With open hands. Second, he doesn't just give to the elite disciples. He doesn't just give to the most influential disciples. He doesn't just give to the most mature disciples. He gives to all, James says. You but need to ask. Third, maybe this is the most precious. He doesn't give with a rebuke. He gives without reproach. God doesn't chastise you about the wisdom you didn't listen to last time you asked for it. We so often do this. Someone will ask for forgiveness from us and we will say, well, I forgive you, but you should have never done what you did. If you truly loved me, as you say you love me, you wouldn't have done that. But I forgive you. He doesn't pass out wisdom that way. He doesn't chastise in the giving. He doesn't say, well, you used it up last time. You didn't do much with what I gave you last time, but here you go again. No. He just gives. You ask, He gives. He gives generously to all. 
But there's a qualifier that James provides here. He says, let us ask in faith, verse 6. James sees doubt as the enemy of faith. Doubt, he's saying, needs to be avoided. That is often not the case in our society. It is celebrated today. As if doubt is some kind of virtue. Question everything, commit to nothing. But as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, he said, an open mind is really a mark of foolishness like an open mouth. Mouths and minds were made to shut. They were made to open only in order to shut. He's quoted as saying in another place, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And God is worth shutting your mind upon. He's worth it. Because He's worth trusting. Now does this mean that your prayers must be free from all doubt? Well, no. Abraham was a man who struggled with doubt. Moses was a man who struggled with doubt. Even David is a man... You will see in the Psalms that will struggle with doubt. That's not what James is saying here. Unfaltering faith will never be realized by you and I in this life. But what James is insisting is that more than not, our lives are to be marked with faith. That is, we are to look to God constantly and consistently. I remember uh, when I was in seminary and I was wrestling with this and I went to one of my mentors and uh, his name was Reverend Settle. I said, Reverend Settle, I said, I don't, I don't understand prayer. I said, I, I, I pray, but I know that when I'm praying that there's always doubt that's mixed in with my prayers. I know that. And I don't understand, when I look at something like James 1, I don't understand how is a prayer like that acceptable to God. And it was of great relief to me. He said, well, Jason, don't you understand? You have a high priest that intercedes for you. And He sanctifies all those prayers. You see, our prayers don't have to be perfect because the one that intercedes for us is perfect. But what James is pointing out is that you and I are to look in faith consistently and constantly over the course of life. And as we make our requests made known, we trust. We trust that we have a faithful high priest that is sanctifying even those prayers that are mixed with doubt. And when they come before the very throne of God, they are perfect prayers. They're unblemished. They're unstained. Because He's offered them up. Not to be tossed like a wave upon the sea. With every trial, every suffering, we doubt God. Or to keep looking to Him. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your trust in the mountaintop moments and He is worthy of your trust in the valleys. 
They're both appointed by Him. They're both appointed by Him for your good, for my good, for our good together. And He's worthy of your trust. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we do thank You that You are truly a sovereign God who is over all, who sustains all, who has appointed all things. We're thankful that You are also a good God, that You are worthy of our trust. No matter what comes into our life, no matter what touches our lives, We know that within the storm there can be a relative peace in Your Son, a peace which surpasses understanding. Would You help us more and more to be conformed to the likeness of our Savior? We would not seek trial in our lives. We pray that when it does come that You would help us to count it all as joy. That we would have a pilgrim mindset. That our great aim would be to look more like our Savior before we see Him face to face. So may we rejoice in every way that You are shaping us. To Your praise and to Your glory, in Christ's name, Amen.